Imagine, if you will, some beautiful closed curtains, just like full, soft, luxurious. Yeah, luscious. And you're saying, wow, those curtains are so beautiful. I just hope nothing ever pulls them apart. But then, oh no, the curtains, they're pulled to the side. No, come back, beautiful, perfect curtains. I can't be without, no, don't worry. The curtains weren't the point. The presentation involves them pulling apart and revealing what's behind them. And what's behind them is actually even more spectacular than the curtains themselves. So we hope that does soothe any concerns people have about the disappearing curtains. And we'll just say the curtains are still there. They're just off screen. They haven't been destroyed. Welcome to the Seriously Wrong Podcast, Social Ecology and the End of Capitalism, second part of our collaboration with the teachers at the Institute for Social Ecology. We are Sean and Aaron, the wrong boys. I'm Sean. I'm Aaron. And this is the second part of the series. So if you haven't heard the first one, there's stuff that's going to make less sense just listening to this by itself. So you're warned, you can listen to it by itself. It's still great. But if you listen to the first one first, I think you'll get something out of that. Yeah, they tell a story together. The first one talks about the current ecological catastrophe and the critique of hierarchy that social ecology makes related to that, that the ecological crisis is a social crisis. And this episode says, okay, what do we do about it? How do we make the world better? How do we take this critique and imagine the end of capitalism? But before we articulate the contours of a post-capitalist world and the path to getting there, rooted in a particular understanding of natural history... Oh, I know where you're going with this. The cold, hard realities of capitalism have to first invade the podcast. Yes, always the parasite. Capitalist relationships have even invaded what is in many ways a sacred space away from it. Because we live under a system where basic need is not provisioned, but rather needs to be purchased with labor hours. The show is financed, including all of the equipment and labor therein, through the generous donations through Patreon. And we'd be negligent in our duties to produce further content to not mention that. So thank you to everyone who is a donor. And I also want to thank people who are donors to the Institute for Social Economy. They're also an organization that is financed from memberships, people participating in their Patreon, and so on. It allows them to do their educational work. Our Patreon allows us to do our educational work. And after capitalism is abolished, we will go back and remove all of these Patreon asks from the entire archive. That is our guarantee. With that out of the way, sit back, relax. We're joined again by our team of social ecological educators. Hi, Heller. Blair Taylor. Eleanor Finley. Dan Many voices speaking on a single topic being more than the sum of their parts. And for those of you still complaining, yes, if you want to be tense while you listen to this, if you want to sit forward, it's allowed. You don't have to sit back and relax. It's just advice. No, yeah, we believe in the free flourishing of humanity. We're not here with a gun pointed at you authoritarians being like, you must relax. Yeah, and, and we don't expect the entire audience to, in unison, all sit back 
at one moment and relax the exact same amount. We expect there to be variability in how people respond. To- Absolutely. And variability in how much people agree. And that's another crucial thing is we're inviting you to think alongside us, to think alongside the tradition of social ecology and come to your own conclusions and think about these things critically. This isn't a complete finished idea on how to fix the world in every way. It's a framework with rich flourishing critiques and counter critiques within it. And we've done as best we can as to capture the spirit of it and the direction of it as an impetus for others to join us in the process of figuring out what the horizons of our horizons might look like. Hello, everyone, and we are the Bumper Sticker Brothers, and we have taken out this ad on Seriously Wrong not to sell our bumper sticker making services like usual. Following our catastrophic failure to deliver a social ecology bumper sticker in the time frame that we had agreed to, we've retired from the bumper sticker making business. We've distributed the power of the Bumper Sticker Brothers institution to the workers and the community through direct democracy. And you know, what really made me say it shouldn't just be us doing this is that we put out a call to see what other people could come up with for social ecology in just 25 words. And it turns out the masses are better at this than two hierarchical brothers deciding on bumper sticker designs for everyone. It turns out that when you crowdsource it, when you ask the people, you get a lot of great results. We are all bumper sticker siblings now. And a study of natural history shows that we are literally all first, second, third, 356, you name it, cousins. You know, we're all bumper sticker cousins or bumper sticker siblings, as we prefer to say. Some of these bumper stickers the facility has been producing since we democratized it are incredible. For example, humanity is a part of nature. Social evolution extends from natural evolution. Hierarchy in society causes ecological destruction and only direct democracy can reharmonize us with nature. This is one of my favorites. A form of revolutionary ecology aiming to understand the role of human society in creating a fertile, harmonious, and resilient planet for all living beings. Now that's something if I saw on the back of someone's car, I'd be like, hell yeah. How about this one? Social ecology, ideas for sustainable, just concepts of property and our relationships to the environment and each other. Now that's a sticker that I would slap right on my bumper. A conclusion that ecological and social crises are intertwined and can be solved within a creative democratic framework to create an equitable and sustainable society. A utopian alternative to existing capitalist hierarchies defined by democratic parallel power structures that can provide for people's material needs in synthesis with the environment. Understanding our relationship with nature is mirrored in our relationships with each other, and addressing both democratically can bring us closer to a just ecological society. This is a beautiful bumper sticker too, and it's not one I would have thought of. In social ecology, you could elect a dog a mayor. It doesn't tell you everything about social ecology, but it tells you the important parts. It's great intuition pump, that one. So there you have it. That's what the people have been coming up with. And I just want to say, I know I know, some people are really sad about this. They've loved the bumper stickers that we've made. And I just want to say that we aren't giving up making bumper stickers ourselves. We've just distributed the power so that others can as well. And some people have written to us and said, Bumper Sticker Brothers, I'm so worried about your last name. What are you going to change your last name to? Don't worry, we're keeping the last name Bumper Sticker. It's going to become like Potter, Mason, Weaver. You know, there's tons of names that used to be professions. And then over time, it just becomes a name, you know? Like not everyone who has the last name Taylor is literally a tailor. <laughs> we do happen to make bumper stickers, but it's not our business. So if you want to be a bumper sticker sibling, hop on Twitter, hashtag social ecology in 25 words. How would you summarize social ecology as short as possible? Can you do it in 10, 5? Why not flex on us? 
Ooh, I, I can do it in two words. Social ecology. It actually is a really good intuition pump for a lot of the things that it covers. So, anyways, back to the show. End of our paid advertisement. We paid to have this on the show to keep everyone up to date. I think books, one of the great strengths of Bookshin's thought and one of the points that opens him up to critique is that he was a comprehensive thinker. And he really thought this whole project through from a very profound philosophical position. And he insisted on consistency so that he saw his ethics, the ethics of social ecology, as something which grew out of his epistemological understanding of nature itself and which the ethics then in turn lead to a politics. I think it can sound intimidating if you're like, well, this isn't just a political position. It's a political position that's informed by ethics. And the ethics aren't just ethics. They're ethics that are informed by an understanding of nature. Our understanding of nature is based on systems of epistemology. It's like, how do we think about thinking? I think you can hear that and be like, holy shit, there's a lot of stuff going on there that's really dense. It's a lot of work to get to the political position. But I really think those are the component pieces of a political position. You can't assert anything in politics without an implicit ethics, an implicit understanding of the world. Yeah, I think you're right. It's already baked into discussions about politics or even like sort of politically adjacent statements people make. Like I think about someone who passes a homeless person on the street and says, get a job, you bum. In one sense, that's just this person expressing annoyance slash advice in a confrontational, rude way. We don't co-sign that statement. No, 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 no. I find it from the epistemology up problematic, and we can get <laughs> into like, this. Yeah, it implies a political position about how to solve the homelessness problem, that it's individual responsibility, and it implies an understanding about how the world works and how humans are and how we should relate to each other. So Bookchin just wanted to be really thorough and cover all of it in his big lifelong career and yeah. be like, I'm starting at the basics and going all the way up. He just really wanted to cover every angle. He saw the project as creating a coherent whole. Right. So like someone telling a homeless person to get a job, they might have an ideology that we rightly dedicate a lot of energy to describing why that doesn't make sense. But the flip side of that has to be describing what does make sense and what we want to build, how we should understand nature. Generally, like within politics, you need to have those oppositional elements and also the reconstructive elements. It's not enough for us to say, okay, guy who is being insulting to a homeless person, your conception of nature is barbaric, not connected to the best evidence, and actually just a justification to exercise arbitrary power within an unjust society where you feel alienated and you're probably traumatized from a lifetime of bizarre interventions. <laughs> That's not enough. We yeah. have to also say, here's our conception of nature. Social ecology looks to the natural world for principles that we can use to construct an ecological society. Nature has some particular dynamics that we need to understand and that we need if our goal is to create an ecological society, if we want to reharmonize first nature and second nature, we need to project as an ethical framework that we can use to guide our actions. People wonder, does Bookshin commit the naturalistic fallacy where you say something's true because natural things are good, or it's good because it's natural and it's natural because it's good. And that's really not what Bookshin's philosophy, which is called dialectical naturalism, is doing. 
He didn't believe this was ethical. He believes humans create ethics as a social product, but that humans could decide to create societies that are based on developmental tendencies that we see in natural evolution. When we look at the sort of crude Darwinian, in particular, the social Darwinist model of evolution, you know, the emphasis is, of course, on the law of fang and claw, battle for survival, each against the other. But that's really crude, and certainly competition does play a role within the evolutionary process. But when we examine it more closely, we see that there are other factors, and this is something Peter Kropotkin and others wrote about. Mutual aid plays a tremendous role, and that includes non-hierarchical relationships, mutualism, recognizing the interdependence of individuals within a species and interdependence of species. The most stable ecosystems are also the most diverse ecosystems. So we have a principle called unity and diversity. Diversity is the cornerstone of the natural world. Through increasing degrees of diversity, you see greater stability. And if you want to get Darwinistic about it, increasing probability that that ecosystem or that kind of organism is going to survive. He saw that spontaneity played an important role in natural evolution. Change occurs in nature often in seemingly spontaneous ways as various species begin to adapt to changes in the environment. We also see that nature is homeostatic. Nature manages to maintain a certain degree of stability, but it's a stability which is dynamic. It's a dynamic balance. Things are always changing. Things are always evolving. Things are always growing, dying, decomposing. And all of that ultimately creates an ecosystem. So like the fundamental idea within a social ecological conception of nature is the realization of the simple fact, all species are part of ecosystems. No species is hierarchically above the others. Species aren't ranked. Humans aren't better or worse than nature. And plants aren't better or worse than animals. It's not a coherent framework to look at nature. Yeah, it's really the projection of that kind of better or worseness onto what we actually do observe, which is differences in nature. You know, a small mammal might eat a beetle, but there's things that beetles are better at than small mammals. Great example of this. I was just reading about the extinction of the dinosaurs. There's the Tyrannosaurus rex, this enormous creature, this teeth. Its jaw is so strong, according to like the CGI imaging they've done, it can bite through cars. And when the extinction event happened, an enormous asteroid hit that just killed them all. It rained hot fire from the sky that scalded them and broke their legs. So the king of the ecosystem completely taken out. And who survives at the same time? Birds. Somehow, birds, actually literally closely related to the T-Rex, survive that. T-Rex doesn't. What what kind of hierarchy was that? Right. It's not. It's just different. They were just both playing different roles within an ecosystem. And then the ecosystem radically changed and there was no more spot for the T-Rexes anymore. But the birds managed to find a new spot. They managed to change with the ecosystem and the T-Rexes couldn't. But that's what nature actually looks like, is there's these periods of stability or homeostasis that are upset by spontaneous changes that will then send things off into finding a new homeostatic balance. But one of the key features of these homeostatic balances that nature reaches is 
different organisms playing different roles in a system together in a mutualistic community where their differences work together to make something bigger as a whole that works for all of them. The diverse parts work together as a whole. That's what nature looks like. We have to understand ecosystems, whatever they're doing, they function as wholes. The individual animals aren't individual liberal agents within their communities. You know, they're not libertarian individual birds trying to maximize their personal nests. But nor are species libertarian individuals fighting against each other either. They've got a more complex and inherently directly and indirectly symbiotic relationship. We're not saying, oh, we should do whatever's in nature. Hyenas eat their young, so we should eat our young as well. That's yeah. obviously foolish. But what we can do is look at nature as a massively differentiated space of a developmental trajectory of certain tendencies, and then from within those tendencies say, which are the tendencies that we'd want to actualize in our society? Yeah, we live in this world that in some sense is like chaotic, and there's these random events, and shit happens, and asteroids hit. But then in order to survive, the thing that works is finding these dynamic balances in nature, these complex mutualistic systems of diverse groups of beings relating to one another in mutualistic ways. Yes, there's other things in nature other than that. There's horror, there's destruction, there's... Ecosystem collapse. Certain parts of ecosystems that invade other ones and then upset balances, and there's a lot of pain and suffering and death in times like that. But when you look at what works, when there's not these kind of big upsets going on, when there's things that are working, like those are the times you want to look at and if we think of it as a developmental trajectory with all of these cascading branches, all these species that are cousins to each other, distant cousins, recent cousins, with all these tiny fluctuations, ecosystems grow and change over time, increasing and decreasing in complexity and self-consciousness in different parts. As a developmental trajectory, you get this flourishing of differences in life, but they all play off each other. In mutualistic relationships within species and outside of species, where even predators and prey have all these unseen connections in the background that link them together. The whole ecosystem is a type of symbiosis. And if you see nature this way, it really is the most beautiful thing you can imagine in the entire world. It's an incredible thing to try to connect your politics to. Social ecology looks to understand the trajectory of life by looking at the natural world, not as a static picture frame, a two-dimensional entity, but rather looking at natural history, the changes that we see in natural evolution over enormous amounts of time. He would say that if you look at any development within an ecosystem, things tend to move from the more general to the more differentiated and complex. And development generally means that. If you look at development of any kind of mammal fetus. The fetus is very generalized in form and as it goes through its own developmental process, it starts to differentiate out and you start to see, oh, this is unfolding into a human being, this is unfolding into a pig, this is unfolding into a dog. And that was really, really interesting to Bookchin, who said there's something meaningful about that move. As life advances, as life evolves, we see more and more permutations of a given kind of organism. And within given ecological system, with time, you see, in general, a trend towards increasing diversity. 
That isn't to say you don't have periods of simplification or destruction, like a wildfire or a flood, but simply that when you look at the evolution from single-celled organisms to multicellular organisms to communities of organisms to superorganisms and the absorption of viruses and bacteria inside our own bodies, you see an increasing tendency towards diversity. Bookshin looks at nature as a domain of potentiality that is imbued with developmental tendencies. Bookshin refers to them as increasing levels of freedom, complexity, self-consciousness, flexibility, subjectivity. I could go on and on. A movement towards ever greater complexity, diversity, and freedom in a certain sense in the process of natural evolution itself. To social ecologists, natural history is the history of the development of diversity, complexity, and freedom. It's a history of the development of symbiosis, mutualism, and self-consciousness. Within that, there's a subcategory of wild nature, the totality of nature, which we call social nature or second nature. So wild nature or first nature is the home of natural ecology, and social nature or second nature is the home of social ecology. Social ecology being the attempt to apply these beneficial lessons from natural ecology to our politics, to the social realm. We want to see what is ecological about nature and mirror that in second nature, in social nature, in our society. Bookchin says you have first nature, and one of the basic mechanisms is that various species adapt to particular environments. One of the guiding principles that informs evolution itself. What distinguishes second nature, or humanity really, from first nature is the fact that cultural evolution is largely a process of humanity adapting the environment to meet its needs, rather than physically mutating to meet particular environmental niche, which is qualitatively different from any other species. Other species do transform their environments. We know that beavers build dams. Even very destructive kinds of environmental events can occur based on other species, but not on the scale and not with the rapidity and not with the impact that humanity has on the planet. We see that clearly today. And social ecology envisions ultimately the emergence of the third nature, which is really the reharmonization of first nature and second nature. And it can only result from awareness, from self-consciousness, from people becoming aware of themselves and thus nature becoming aware of itself. With advances in scientific understanding, we're gaining insight into, in fact, how nature operates, a self-knowledge. And out of that can emerge a third nature or a free nature. And that's a potential that we hold as human beings. Nature is a system where life diversifies over time, and the life within that system varies, but increasingly includes extremely complex organisms that have the capacity for freedom and eventually political freedom, which is the case of humans. So for Bookchin, he wants to ground the idea of freedom, which is usually thought of as being just a human ideal, and he wants to actually acknowledge a pre-human foundation for freedom. For Bookchin, natural history or natural evolution, he really preferred the term natural history, is that unfolding of organic life moving from the first single cell organism 
to invertebrates, to invertebrates, to mammals, to what people call higher mammals, organisms that have very nascent amounts of subjectivity, to organisms who have increasing amounts of subjectivity and will. In a very basic sense, freedom is the ability to make choices. It's the ability to consciously understand the implications of your actions and to make decisions on that basis. We see it most highly developed, I would suggest, in humanity, in our species. But I think it's a difference in degree rather than a difference in kind. I think what we've seen as consciousness has developed from single-celled organisms, and certainly we can't be aware of what their consciousness is, but given the limited neurological structures that we can observe, they actually are, in a certain sense, programmed to carry out certain biological functions. But as cellular structures become more complex and more complex organisms develop, those neurological networks develop and consciousness begins to emerge and to evolve. It's really an ongoing process. Take an ant, for example, put it on a piece of paper. You can't necessarily map out the way the ant is going to move the way you might be able to map out a physics equation precisely because it's not a machine. It's not an algorithm. It has nascent subjectivity. It participates to some degree in its own life and responds in its own way spontaneously sometimes in ways that are flexible, in ways that are creative. It has nascent self-directivity. It has nascent consciousness and freedom. For social ecology, freedom is really an ever-expanding realm. It's the ability to take control of our future, to make conscious decisions about the direction that we want to go. Humans are self-conscious creatures. We are nature-rendered self-conscious. Human beings are endowed with what books would call the power to create and the power to destroy, that we're both very creative animals and very perilous ones because we have the capacity to do what's happening right now on the planet, which is to tear it down. So you have the idea that our capacity for freedom is part of this development within first nature of increasing complexity, subjectivity, freedom, and you have human beings as the furthest expression of this trajectory of life. Our capacity for freedom comes from that greater trajectory. In the human social realm, just like in the natural realm, you have these bursts and flourishes of political freedom, which is like flexibility and subjectivity and diversity, etc., in the political realm. And so it's like those are kind of the same thing. Like first nature and second nature are all part of nature. They're all part of one full wholeness. Bookchin in The Ecology of Freedom phrases this project to try to describe the natural wholeness of developmental systems, of ecosystems. He says he's trying to make the concept of wholeness intelligible so we can glimpse a fresh image of freedom. What he means by this is that by seeing the reality that social nature, second nature, arose out of the developmental trajectory inherent to first nature, you know, increasing complexity, diversity, and freedom, we are a product of the forces of nature. And then within social nature, each of us erupts in a very similar way, that we're the product of our community, we're the product of the social relationships that we arrive in. And human beings as these complex, very intelligent apes, we're faced with the choices of ethics and science and technology. 
part of what being self-conscious beings means is that we have the power to make choices and to deliberate about ethical questions and to use our ability to be more flexible than an ant or a dog to apply these ecological lessons to the social realm using ethics to consciously create more freedom as a trajectory politically. So when we're talking about reharmonizing first nature with second nature, obviously that includes organizing our production and our society and our social systems in such a way that they can safely embed within first nature, that we're not violating the limits of natural ecology. That's part of social ecology. But social ecology is more than that. It's the application of those same ecological principles to our political world, like principles of mutualism, of non-hierarchical interactions, of allowing for spontaneity and flexibility within society while having you know, a homeostatic dynamic balance, having increasing amounts of diversity in society and finding unity through that diversity, creating a society where like and ecology, we're all interacting with each other as this symbiotic whole where all the parts rely on one another and together they create the space that's necessary for more freedom to grow and to develop. So Bookchin, he connected that to the idea of a general assembly or generally face-to-face -face democracy in communities being the function and structure of a naturalistic politics, just like the ecosystems of the world where the whole is bigger than the sum of its parts. And we can glimpse a fresh image of freedom by seeing our freedom is interconnected with our communities and engaging in processes which are egalitarian in nature and which allow us to express our full freedom in co-development with one another, just like we find in the natural world. Selfhood and void. Ah, selfhood. Just the self and the void. All I know and all I ever have known. Oh, self. Oh, void. Hey there. Whoa, hey, what the... Consciousness in a void. I'm a distinct consciousness in a void. Wait, wait, sorry. Can you explain this again? Are you self? Kind of. To me, but not to you. To you, I'm other. Other? Exactly. A traveling sales other. So if there's anything you wanted to purchase, we could make a deal. All right, sales other. What are you hawking and selling here today? Well, one of my most popular items is this right here. This is a nature. It's called nature. A lot of selves and voids want to experience, rather than just a pure blank infinity that is all the same, like mm -hmm. a void, yeah. they want to experience something that's more like a nature, which has kind of infinite variability. And like here, if you just peer into it, you can see there's all these plants and other creatures as well. Oh, wow. That's, so that's what's meant by nature, the trees. The trees and the little, I don't have terms for, for that in particular, but it's it's quite an odd so walking, that's an moving ocean. tree. Oh, oh, I see. Oh, you meant that. That's a turtle on the side of the ocean. Yeah, they all have names. Oh, okay. You'll get it. Sorry, I've just been a selfhood and a void. This is all news to me. Well, this seems quite neat. Yeah, and this, what you're seeing here, is only part of it. Only part of it? That's incredible. This is kind of the fine print, and I'm a traveling sales other who doesn't like to pull one over on people, so I always let people know the fine print. Oh, well, thank you so much. So this nature, it's not just an object. This isn't going to stay the same. When you're buying this, you're buying a whole trajectory. Wait, so I can't count on this tree and those trees and that little walking ocean? The trees will die, the continents will move, 
it's never going to be the same as it is right now again. It's always changing. Uh huh. So nature is more of a verb than a noun. I was really more thinking of buying a noun today. And there's a lot of different ways it can change, but generally you're going to see increasing complexity and flexibility. We like to call it the fullness that gets more full. Yeah. I, I, I mean, those are some interesting features. When you're um, but can I just only have part of nature, just like part no, of No, see, well, the turtle, it has to breathe air and drink water, so it needs the air and the water. But in order for the air to have the right balance of stuff in it, you need all the plants. In order for the plants to grow, you, it's a whole thing. You kind of need, it's all or nothing. We can't evolve a turtle here in the void? No, if you bring the turtle into the void, it will suffocate and die. Oh, and a lot of people don't like, if you want the ever-increasing fullness and stuff, it's kind of what they naturally do, but there are limits to kind of what you can do to it. If you pump this nature all full of certain chemicals, then all the other things die. There's just kind of these natural gives and takes and balances, and in order for the increasing complexity and freedom to emerge, you kind of have to stick within those limits. So that's another thing people don't like sometimes. I don't know. Could you make me a version of this that sort of works on a hierarchical basis? Like, oh, like command and control, things above yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah, but also just yeah, broadly more like pyramidally shaped in its essence and its very nature from fundamental first principles. Ooh, yeah. Some of the other sales others, they do try to make natures like that. But in my experience, as trajectories, they kind of fall apart right away. It doesn't really work. I don't make natures like that. Every nature like that I've ever seen has disintegrated and exploded, which in a void can be kind of fun to look at, but there's untold suffering there. Uh, so hierarchical nature is a maybe a good idea in theory, but doesn't work in practice, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I am sorry. I prefer my selfhood in the void to thinking about this sort of developmental trajectory thing. So if you could leave me to my void, I will just... Be, I assume, yeah, to be, in yeah. the void. And to think. To think is to be. Well, yeah, absolutely. If that's the decision, I don't like to put pressure on people. I'm an honest sales other. I'll find another consciousness in a void who might be interested in a nature and uh, no harm, no foul. So thanks for hearing me out. Well, thank you. And thank you for taking the time today to explain these details to me and to warn me for the reasons why I might not want it, because I found that very honest. And some people just really do want it. They want to experience ever increasing freedom, but some people don't care. And that's fair. Yeah, more of a self and a void, but have a good one. Bye. Oh, missed it again. Missed it. Another sail down the drain. You know, they keep telling me not to be so honest, but damn it, it's just, it's the right thing to do. I don't want to sell something to someone who doesn't want it. I'm going to keep doing it. It's going to work eventually. You got this. You got this. Okay. Okay. Next consciousness. Well, that is some dense, heady theory. All this analyzing nature and deriving ethics from nature and then deriving politics from those ethics. It's, it's great, it, but... It can be tiring sometimes. Yeah. You know what we say, you need philosophical and ethical inquiry to change the world, but to really get into it for a long time can be tiring on the brain. That's a classic phrase. Yeah, sometimes you just need to ground yourself. The philosophical ideas are like leaves and the flowers on the tree reaching up to the sky, kind of way up in the clouds. But you also need the roots down in the ground, connected to the earth and to practical reality, you know? Materialism.
as a set of revolutionary philosophical ideas in an ecology of revolutionary philosophical ideas, it's an evolutionary strategy for something like social ecology to have cool showy leaves like, oh, dialectics. Oh, yeah, the structure of nature. Uh, simultaneous rejection and embrace of anarchism. Like, oh, that's nice. It attracts you. But you also need to have a firmly planted base, the roots and the dirt. To get us into the dirt, to help us with the dirt, we thought, let's get a dirt expert. And is there a dirt expert that's also a social ecologist? And it turns out there is. Grace Gershuni, social ecological educator and ecological food security activist. Hi, Sean. So what's revolutionary about dirt? Dirt pillows. I have long believed the impetus to change the food system is kind of the leading edge of the revolution that we need, the political revolution, because it is such an immediate need that people have lost the ability to provide for and control in their own lives. Self-provisioning for the basic staples of life, healthful basic staples in life is still a long way away for most places. The need to retake control of the, our basic life sustenance, producing food locally, changing the infrastructure, changing people's consuming habits. All of that is part of how agriculture and food production have to be remade to have the kind of free, autonomous, confederal entities that Bookshin envisioned and that our cohorts are carrying forward in so many creative and wonderful ways thinking about how food is grown, how that fits into ecology, but also how it fits into the politics of making sure that everybody has what they need. It's a very powerful political center. It's not that like everyone has to be a self-sustaining farmer and there's some like ethical necessity that every person must provide their own food in the garden or something. It's not about individual food security that way. It's about community food security, shared larger scale gardens and stuff like that is sort of the ideal that you would aim for. Control over the systems that provide us with this basic need has been taken away from us. And the organizations and people who do have control over those systems have control over us in a hierarchical way. So to rectify that, to have non-hierarchical politics about food is for us to control food production ourselves democratically. Another way to think about this is an understanding of your local ecology, the process of producing food localized to your community, to the biosphere, the bio community that you're in, is a type of revolutionary education that people should undertake. You can do your part to contribute a little bit to the total food stuff of any given community. No matter what sort of weird revolution, counter-revolution things happen in the future, if we end up underneath a techno-neo-feudalism, it's going to be useful information then. If we end up under some sort of nuclear primitivism, it's going to be useful under then. One of the things I was impressed about when I went on a sustainable agriculture tour of Cuba in the year 2000 what's being done there by promoting urban agriculture and the amount of food that's being produced within the city is quite remarkable. And that is entirely possible in most of the U.S. and in places where there are ecological limits that make it ridiculous to have a large city like in the desert. In those cases, the units of political and social organization need to be much smaller and much more ecologically bound with the systems that are adapted to their particular regions. I think, too, like participating in a garden 
whether it's your own or in a community or just learning about how it works, I think is a type of experiential education about a lot of this stuff that we've been talking about the strength of biological diversity and like having these different plants growing them together. Nobody who grows a garden thinks that radishes are ethically superior to tomatoes or even that little animals that come through your garden and eat your food are superior to your food because they're higher up on the food chain. I think experiencing interacting with the natural world in this basic way of growing food, you gain a lot of just intuitive understanding about how nature actually works, what makes it work, these principles that make nature thrive. You know, I grew up in the city, never had a garden. I had spent some time in Montreal and got involved with the food co-op movement, began to learn about nutrition, began to learn about how to prepare healthy food and what was healthy food, and realized the only way that I was ever going to be able to afford the healthy food was to grow it myself. <laughs> so, had the experience of an incredibly abundant and productive first garden, I was totally hooked. And so that led me down the agriculture rabbit hole. I began learning about soil health, which is something that Bookshin wrote quite a bit about and which won my undying admiration for his insight at an early stage. I wrote a book called The Soul of Soil that was actually part of my graduate program. My work-study project was writing this manual for farmers in the Northeast about ecological soil management. So that has been central to everything I've done. Dirt's really at the heart of a lot of politics. Everything we eat is ultimately just restructured dirt, restructured through gardening. You know, the nutrients from the dirt are turned into carrots. Yeah, using the natural technology of seeds, we can turn dirt into carrots with water, a few other things. Sunlight. Yeah. Soil health is important, obviously, for human health, for animal health, and for crop health. But beyond that, it's important for mitigating and beginning to reverse climate change, moderating or modulating the exchange of gases and energy with the atmosphere and with the rest of the ecosystem. Organisms in the soil also help manage the whole hydrologic cycle, and all of those things are related to the life of the soil and the living organisms that build soil organic matter and that cycle nutrients, make nutrients available to plants and recycle stuff that is no longer needed by the humans or the animals, such as manure. So I tried gardening for the first time this year. I had two plots, one with worms and one without. Mm. The worms plot, I was just blown away. How much worms helped. The little worm friends, yeah. they didn't get in there and dominate my plants. They didn't get there and be my plant's little boss. My plants weren't their boss. They were just like next to each other, chilling in a good little eco-community, and then they both thrived as a result of it. You know why those plants did better? Worm poop. That's why worms are good for garden, because they eat stuff in the dirt and then poop it out. And then those plants sucked the poop up into them, and it became more delicious food for you. Yeah, and that's what social ecologists fundamentally recognize that I think, you know, let's be honest, the Marxists in the academy, the anarchists in the streets, no one really recognizes. Pretty much every literal piece of food that exists ever is a late stage and early stage shit. It's almost like if you look at the actual natural world, waste equals food. And that if we want to make a society that works, we're going to have to incorporate that principle into our production. Our food production, all kind of our production. 
the outputs need to be useful inputs. We see that in nature. Yeah, we see that in diverse, stable eco-communities. What can help with soil management, improve soil health, and this is becoming more understood, is that we need to keep the soil covered, eliminate as much non-porous surface as possible so that water sinks into the soil instead of running off into the surface water, have living roots in the soil as long as possible, avoid bare soil, avoid tilling the soil as much as possible, and to have livestock on the soil as much as possible. Not necessarily domestic livestock for human consumption, but that is definitely an important tool that is needed to repair the certifying areas of the earth, which is most of the arable parts of the world are rapidly desertifying, losing their cover and losing their ability to absorb water and to work ecologically to produce food and fiber and trees and all of the good things that keep the earth healthy. But interesting little thing, too, when you look at the garden, a lot of these things are cousins, too. You know, like we talk about the developmental trajectory of nature, it applies to the garden too. It actually was a co-development of symbiosis with humans where wild cabbage was turned into Brussels sprouts, kale, broccoli. They were selected by us. Cabbage as we know it wouldn't exist without us. So we made the tools, the tools made us, the food made us, we made the food. We're part of this trajectory where mutuality and circularity, the waste equal food thing, are the fabric of it. And it's exemplified in the garden. Yeah, we went down into the dirt, and it turns out that the roots just grow right back up into the tree and the leaves again, because it's all connected. Oh, and look at this, the fruit, it is delicious. Oh, oh, the fruit. The roots make the tree make the fruit, which is delicious. The fruit of a free society, the fruit of direct democratic radical education, knowing the eco-community that you're a part of, and knowing the community that you're a part of. So I think that for many people, the experience of understanding that food has to be decentralized, localized, and controlled by those who consume it, by communities, by locations, is the first step in the leading edge to understanding that this is a good way to organize the rest of our lives and production of other kinds of needs, and that there are other ways that people are developing systems and governance systems for decision-making and for conflict resolution and for mutual aid that flow from that experience. Thank you so much for stopping to chat with us, Grace. Sure thing. I enjoyed it a lot. But uh, yeah, maybe that's enough gardening for today. I'm getting pretty tired. Yeah, my hands are completely covered up to my elbows in dirt. Yeah. I'm just dirty, <laughs> but it's, it feels good to get out there. I'm a little, actually probably got a sunburn. Oh, yeah. You didn't put any lotion on, hey? Yeah, I'm still a rebellious teen when it comes to that sort of thing. No gloves either. You probably got scratched up a little bit in the dirt. Oh, yeah. And if there's anything in the fertilizer, I might get a rash or something. You know what? A gardener needs their tools. Let's be honest, you know? Hey, we're all learning. We're yeah. all <laughs> growing together, getting better. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by Fullness Goggles. Now, as we all know, we exist within ecosystems, but it can be really easy as just one part of that ecosystem to start seeing everything just from your own perspective or to 
forget about all the invisible connections between you and the other creatures and the plants and the water cycle and all these things over time, how it's all part of one thing together. It can be hard to see that with your eyes. And so that's why we invented fullness goggles. Now, I'm a nature lover. I love to go out there and see, you know, the birds singing and flying around. He's not kidding. Trees. He never shuts up about he it. He can hardly get me back to the advertising studio because I'm so busy sightseeing and reflecting on that sort of stuff. But with fullness goggles, these completely voluntary goggles can be used to see the wholeness, the fullness, even within something as simple and small as seeing the first robin of spring. Now that's a beautiful sight by itself, I must confess. But with fullness goggles, you can see the life cycle of the bird. You can see how birds grow up. What other animals do they interact with? What sort of trees do they tend to nest in? What the threats are to their survival and the things that allow them to thrive. And you can see the developmental trajectory where you came from, even recognizing that, holy cow, this beautiful red robin is a descendant of literal dinosaurs. As a nature lover, it's a thrilling experience. Something I always notice when I'm walking around with my fullness goggles on is that little bits of plastic littered on the ground don't just look like, oh, that's a piece of trash to me. What I see is millions, billions, it's hard to count, honestly, bits of microplastic that that plastic will break down into. And I see all the animals, the fish, the plankton, I see these bits of microplastic lodging themselves into the environment, into creatures and harming them slowly over time. It's overwhelming. Every piece of plastic trash you see with a fullness goggles on, it's kind of the most disgusting thing in the world. It's humbling to see the fullness of even just what a piece of plastic trash will mean going forward into the future of trajectory of nature. Oh, I had such a similar experience. Yesterday, I was on a beach and I saw a little starfish had washed up on land and I could see what it would mean for it to die, you know, the microorganisms and other things that could feed on it and all of this, you know, the ecosystem and its wholeness, but it was still alive and I picked it up and I threw that starfish back in the ocean and I saw that. Police, get down on the ground. It was the cops. Hey, special oh, operations hey, here on behalf of Peaceful, go your back. No funny stuff. We're writing the reports around here. All right, then. This advertisement has been seized as contraband in an ongoing investigation with alleged promotion of illegal goggles I have here. Sorry, I'm just reading and learning here as we're doing this announcement. Our beautiful, well-clothed emperor now fully owns this commercial. And with it, he's instructed us to warn about the perils of breaking the law. It says here, people who wear these goggles start to think of all of human society as part of nature. It says here, they start to think of the ecological impacts of products before they purchase them. Oh, geez, yeah. And they also think of the variety of political tools available to them to affect the actual production of products in the first place, uh, sort of political intervention <laughs> and yeah no wonder this is banned now, actually apparently the thing in particular that caused them to ban it is that when you look at the emperor you see him nude first but you also see him in relation to his subjects inherently which is not the way the emperor prefers to be perceived look the glory of the emperor relies on the suffering of the masses this is how it works but when you're wearing fullness goggles you can't even behold the glory without also being simultaneously conscious of the horror well, that just takes all the fun out of it. 
the punishment for using these illegal goggles will be death sentence by starving dogs, or a group of starving dogs more specifically. Did we have that? Yes, oh yeah, the warning tape. So we've been told to use this advertising time to show what it's like to be eaten alive by starving dogs. So this is part of the Fullness 5. He is a dissident and just a quick, here we go, pop this in. So don't let this be you, what you're about to see. All right, before we unleash the starving dogs on you, do you have any final words? I'm here today before you judge because I think that knowledge, that science belongs to all of us and that having our voices matter. It's something that all people deserve and the fullness goggles are just a tool to see that. We can do so much better than these pyramid goggles. They don't show us the truth. We have to be able to take our goggles off and put different goggles on and we have to try to see fullness. And a society that's trying to keep that from us is an unjust one. We're running short on ad time. I'm just fast forwarding yeah, just, through this. It's right. boring. He went way too long. Not exactly the tone of the commercial. I think this is just before it happens. And play. Is that not who we ought to be? Not just for ourselves, but for each other, for our children, and for the future of the human trajectory that we're all a part of? Release the dogs. The starving dogs are clearly like, ow, ow, ow. <laughs> no. And that's the part of the tape that we wanted to emphasize. So that's the punishment if you buy or wear the wrong goggles in this society. An announcement made by police on behalf of the emperor. And, and now back to the show. So before we move on to fully imagining the end of capitalism, we thought we should take a little bit of time to have our guests address a common objection that we hear a lot and that came up in response to the last episode when we suggested that hierarchy and capitalism could be overthrown and that we could have a radically much better society. They said, there's no alternative to capitalism and the way things are. This is a structure that has stability. This is a nice idea for a community to be democratic and ecological and stuff, but good ideas don't tend to work because people have tendencies toward greed, corruption, and etc. Because of that human nature, a beautiful utopian society can't really be actualized. And I see here they also noted that whether or not you want to read nature hierarchically, there's no dispute that humans have organized themselves hierarchically in the past and currently. They do create command and control institutions that outlive them. And fair enough, you're not going to hear us denying that that is within the range of potential ways that humans have organized societies, but it's not the only way. Anthropology is very central to social ecology. I'm an anthropologist, so I'm a little partial to the field. I kind of think that it's central to any revolutionary project. Anthropology provides an important counterfactual to the idea that humans have always lived in essentially capitalist status forms. Like, no, that's not the case. When you study anthropology, you get the sense of scale. And, you know, if we understand the whole of human history, and you're all out an old anthropological saw, the whole of human history is a yardstick. It's really only in the last six inches or so of that history that hierarchy, institutionalized hierarchies, really emerge. The state really only appeared about 6,000 years ago. So that's really recent when you think about 150,000 years of human history. And capitalism is roughly 550 years old. It's really, really recent. Capitalism is a blink of an eye. The state is a blink of an eye. Most human societies have been non-state, non-capitalist. They've been organized in a multiplicity of different ways. 
The human beings have lived on this planet for 99% of our existence in egalitarian societies. They were not utopian and they were not entirely free of domination or hierarchy, but they were egalitarian and they were free of large scale structures that created horrifying inequalities and tyranny. Based on our observations, certainly of contemporary hunters and gatherers, the few that remain, we see that they are still extremely egalitarian, even in the face of modernity. For example, I was just in Tanzania and spent some time with the Hadza people, who are one of two remaining hunting and gathering bands, still functioning in Africa. And it was remarkable because they live in the midst of highways and cars within a few miles, but they're still hunting and gathering, and they're still extremely egalitarian. They still practice complete communism. All goods are shared in common. There's no quid pro quo, no notion of a fair exchange. There's simply an understanding, an underlying solidarity that means when food is available to one, it's evenly shared within that group. I think one of the most important lessons that an anthropological perspective can offer us is the contrast between the way they live and the way we live. You know, when European colonizers first encountered indigenous people, inevitably they looked for the leader. And if there was not a leader in the sense that they understood leadership present, then they would create one. There's been an incredible diversity around the world throughout history of different types and modes of society. There's examples of extremely egalitarian societies, there's examples of extremely hierarchical societies, there's examples of societies that alternate between hierarchical and non-hierarchical modes of organization based on the system, in some cases even changing their names at the different times of year. Humans are capable of such an incredible variety and diversity of ways of being and relating to one another in the world. In terms of seeing what is potentially possible for humanity, deciding what we want, what kinds of situations result in thriving and in the political realities that we want to build, there's just so much better stuff to pull from the vast history of humanity than capitalism and domination and command and control hierarchies. It's just this bias towards modernity that makes it feel like it's eternal when it's not. It's an extremely limited view that's unfortunately intentionally fostered by people who have a lot to lose in terms of disproportionate power over others. This idea that there's no alternative to the way things are, or the idea that the reason why we haven't seen so-called full communism is because of some inherent corrupting nature. There's been so much harm done through the emergence of what we call liberal philosophy since the 1600s and even before that wants us to think that human beings are inherently antisocial. We're always involved in a Hobbesian war of all against all, that we're always bumping up against each other's self-interest, that we're greedy, that we hoard, that we're living inevitably in a Malthusian nightmare where we're always grappling with scarcity. We're told again and again and again that it's human nature to be greedy, to be acquisitive, to create hierarchies, to oppress other people. All of that which we are inculcated into believing constitutes some kind of human nature which is irrevocable and has always been with us throughout the whole of history. Examining these other cultures really gives the lie to that and suggests that in fact all of those negative components that we assume to be basic to human nature today certainly exist. There's also much broader range of potentiality. He was definitely pointing to some very important social values he thought we could draw out as things that we could not necessarily return to but be inspired by 
and that he thought, in fact, were even better than some of the modern ideas of Marxism, liberalism, of like abstract justice and whatever. And this is where Bookchin made some overgeneralizations, but a few of these are the irreducible minimum, the idea that everybody is entitled to a basic minimum of life, no matter what they contribute. Usufruct, the idea of ownership based on use, that you're using things and therefore you have a right to use them rather than private property. The idea of the inequality of unequals, that we are not all these abstract liberal subjects, that we're not all equal. Some people are old, some people are young, some people have more knowledge than others, and that's okay. We shouldn't deny that and flatten it out, but what we should do is create a society that is complementary. This idea of complementarity he pulls out of indigenous societies. Now, it's also important to note that in the second edition to Ecology of Freedom, he has this long preface where he basically says, I was way too rosy and romantic. It's a little embarrassing. And he kind of overcorrected, I would say, and kind of threw all that out. And there again, it's very historically specific. Why did that happen? Because in the 1990s, he was in the midst of an environmental movement that was running pell-mell towards essentialist versions of post-colonialism that held up non-Western people as some naturally ecological, non-dominating, blah, 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 blah. But nonetheless, they are very important counterfactuals. And, you know, the, the, the good society, the utopia is not behind us in any case, it's in front of us. And anthropologists don't really even talk about human nature. We talk instead about the human potential. The human potential is extremely broad. And while it contains the potential for violence and aggression and greed, the motivating factors in our society, it also holds the potential for a kind of nurturance and caring and sharing which is characteristic of these egalitarian societies. And we haven't lost that. In the process of cultural evolution, everything is retained. So social ecology doesn't suggest that we could go back or would want to go back to being hunters and gatherers, but it does suggest that the principles that animated their lives and the institutions that they created to ensure egalitarianism are still within our grasp. So I guess not only are hierarchical institutions not ubiquitous throughout human history, it actually just turns out that we can build all different kinds of institutions and that maybe the institutions we have today are the way they are because of the corrupting influence of certain contingent power relationships. So if we say, okay, it's not that human nature is to always become corrupt, it's that power can be a corrupting influence, so therefore we can prepare our institutions to decentralize power, distribute power, and create democratic institutions where people's power is actually weighted relative to a just sense of proportionality. You can address the issue of power being corrupt without saying that it's the nature of humanity, because we find in a lot of circumstances... People have enormous tendencies towards pro-social behavior. There's a bunch of behavioral social science on this stuff. Like people are extremely social from a really, really young age. It's really part of who we are. Yeah. So it's not to deny any of the bad parts of who we are, but it's just to say that we are so much more than that. And we can organize our society in so many more ways than this. The fact that the world is this way instead of another way isn't proof that this is the only way that worlds can be. It's proof that the world could be any weird way. Do you really think all of these constructs that we have are universal, that if you wait for life on another planet long enough, eventually they're going to conceive of this idea of private property and have billionaires? Bookshin, in redefining nature from what we could call a modern view of nature, 
the nature that Marx saw or the nature that Darwin saw, this hierarchical stagal process of one developmental moment giving way and being negated by the following developmental moment where you go from primitive societies all the way through agricultural societies to industrial capitalist societies. You know, Marx believed that inevitably history was going to end with a stateless socialist society. And Bookchin broke with that hierarchical reading that looked at social evolution as being stagial and deterministic and having a very hard, what's called a hard telos, a hard end of history. Bookchin believed that there was no deterministic flow to natural history whatsoever. He believed there were moments of potentiality all along the entire trajectory of social, cultural history, human history, that people have to consciously choose and that this work of trying to create a new society is the domain of human will, not destiny whatsoever. It's important to, I think, center that open, exploratory, experimental feeling of contingency. Yeah, that the way it is is the way it is because that's just how it happened to be. It depends on particular conditions. It depends on what we do. It depends on what people before us did. It's not that things necessarily go one way or another. They could be radically different from how they are and have been radically different in the past and could be again. Yeah, I feel like that perspective is validated and can be reinforced through archaeology, anthropology, history, yeah, history, natural sciences, biology even. But it can also be justified through a sense of embracing the absurd in that the world is this way by contingent rare circumstance. It's like the opposite of there is no alternative. There's a million possible alternatives to everything that you see. Yeah, there's infinite alternatives. Like literally things could be slightly different in an infinite amount of ways. Yeah, and there's all these tiny gradients of like, we could have made different switches at different times. Like if you imagine multiple realities and the idea that there's the branching timeline every time a choice is made, do you think in every alternate reality that exists, capitalism developed in the same way and then it's going to develop into communism next? No. There could be a version of 2020 where we're in a post-scarcity utopia and there was no capitalist stage. Industrialism happened in some other way. I think about this sometimes, the present that's been robbed from us. Because when I think of stuff like the Pirate Bay and ISO Hunt, these spaces where you had free access to information on a wide scale in a way that was outside the confines of capitalism, there's a sort of like spark of infinite learning. And like you can still access today these online libraries on the internet, which are illegal, still sort of flourishing on the margins where you can find all these rare books. It's incredible. And it makes me think of the present that has been taken from us. The concept of not having free, lifelong education could be seen as immoral and weird as like joking about punching a baby to their mom. It could be that weird to people now. Yeah. And that presence been taken from us. And Bookchin talked about the whys of history, and it wasn't the existential whys in W-H-Y, but literally the letter Y, like a fork going one way or the other that at any historical junction, there was almost an infinite number of ways that history could go. And that people who tell the history and create the ugly society we live in try to make history look like it could have only gone the way that it went. And Bookshin liked to go back, look at these whys of history, these branches that got lopped off to see what was promising there, what was potentially radical and revolutionary and emancipatory there. 
He was interested in Athenian democracy. He was not interested in the hierarchical features of Athenian society because they had classes and they had slaves. But what they put forth that was novel was this idea of people representing themselves directly, not through representatives as we do in a representative Republican democracy, but in a stateless direct democracy. He was interested in looking at the Iroquois Confederation as a really interesting moment in history where humans came together and again created a decentralized, confederal, complementary relationship between different groups of people. And he was interested in the Paris Commune. Oh my God, he just spent so much time talking about, you know, his eyes would just sparkle and he was wildly passionate talking about the Paris Commune as this moment in which history could have really gone a different way. And the people living in the Paris Commune who were creating it really had this notion of creating a decentralized kind of communalist direct democracy. He looked at slave rebellions, the Indian Revolution, the Haitian Revolution. So history is central because it, it has to be combed through to look at the moments that have been discarded, the turns not taken. We can find there moments of our own history as human beings that show that we have the potential to be cooperative and egalitarian and ecological. And history is really important literally for our own self-esteem as human beings, that if we look at these hidden histories, we can regain our revolutionary nerve and our revolutionary imagination. Welcome to Imagining the End of Capitalism. It's the name of the episode. It's about time we get down to it. You know, both are challenging in their own way, but imagining the world after capitalism is a little bit easier than imagining the transition, an actual real world transition away from the system that we've lived our entire lives believing to be the way of things. That moment, that Kodak moment or Instagram moment. Yeah, well, it could be a duration more so than a moment. I think you're right. We've got a tendency to want to have that Instagram moment for revolution. But I think really thinking about this seriously, we do have to think about it in terms of a trajectory that extends years, probably a decade at the low end. And I would say that the trajectory towards the end of capitalism started hundreds of years ago and is still ongoing. So if we want to think about the end of capitalism, it might be useful to split it up into three sections. There's the preconditions of the transition, the preconditions of revolution, you know, the metaphorical soil. Then there's the transitionary period. And that's like the plants growing, right? You've planted your revolution in your soil and it's growing, but not yet fully ready. And then the third is the sort of moment where we reach the end of the transition, where the transition is complete. Harvest time. Where the relationships of humanity on Earth are defined primarily by solidarity, mutual aid, kindness, ecology, and so on. And capitalism becomes a historical footnote. But yeah, let's take these one at a time. So the preconditions. If we want to grow a revolution, if we want to move along the trajectory towards increasing political freedom, what are some of the preconditions? What do we need in the soil? Maybe we could say part of the soil of the successful revolution is going to be the information communications technology that helps the people around the world to have access to one another in ways that haven't previously existed. But I think that the heart of it is education, knowledge, sharing of information, you know, building 
relationships and political knowledge up in communities. Like that would be sort of the soil phase of revolution, which everyone's already sort of inherently in, no matter the era that you're in. Yeah, preparing the soil. Like you're usually not starting from void with nothing in it. It's just that the soil that's there isn't perfect, but there's useful stuff in it. You know, you just got to make a few adjustments, maybe add a bit more water, maybe understand humanity's place in the trajectory of nature, maybe understanding the interconnectedness of the social crisis and the ecological crisis. And recognizing like ideological weeds that are going to impair the growth of the garden. Now, I'm not just talking about any sort of like dandelion has nutritious benefits. People eat dandelion, but there's destructive plants that can really damage a garden. And in the same way, in the realm of ideas, in the realm of the ideological soil we try to build together, fascism and racism, anti-Semitism comes to mind as the type of weed you don't want to grow in your revolutionary garden. Yeah, that kind of stuff will ruin the whole garden ecosystem. So there's a lot of ways that it could happen. We don't know the shape of the future, but when I think about the spread of Occupy Wall Street camps all around in 2011 or the Me Too movement, new common sense emerged through the change of information communications network and also based heavily on learning to listen to each other in new ways. So there was like a political contagion across common sense of ideas that help us to better understand and listen to each other and see our place in the world. The time the soil is really metaphorically right here would be a time where there could be a organic and far-reaching spread of a new common sense, a common sense oriented in direct democracy, horizontality, and ecology. Something that can happen and should happen to have a successful transition away from capitalism. Which brings us to part two, the growth period. Now, I like to always point out here that separating these two things is really fake in a way because... In reality, the types of movements that we need in order to have this revolution have already begun and have already been starting and stopping and succeeding and failing in various different ways already. This has been happening and continues to happen right now as we speak. Like you mentioned, Occupy Wall Street as one kind of movement as part of this trajectory right now. We're seeing all these Black Lives Matter protests around America on racial and economic justice issues, police brutality. The growth is happening as in other places we're preparing the soil. These things are happening together. It's hard to guess the shape that sort of the transitionary period might look like. We could make some sort of generalized guess and say, okay, the neighbors of the world are going to rise up against the landlords and politicians and stuff like that. But then when you look at like detailed recounts of history, it's almost always the case that things happen in a great part due to these random historical circumstances that don't seem really relevant to the greater picture. A great example is World War I. Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated and it somehow sparks off a global conflict, which wouldn't necessarily follow. Like It'd be like a weird prediction to make. In the same way, to make that specific of a prediction of like what series of events could cause regions of the world or locales to cast off the system from before, which it seems like a pretty consistent thing throughout human history is like when there's unjust conditions, people turn against them. And if it becomes sufficiently unjust, revolutions happen. But it could happen in any number of bizarre ways. It could be like a certain celebrity reads a certain book and appears on a certain late show, which, you know, like, who knows how the historians are going to track the beginning of where something really pops off in a different way. It could be that what's happening right now in northern Syria with the Rojava revolution inspires copycats in other parts of the world and they start confederating. That's like one of the clear trajectories towards a different world that starts arising. 
But I think in this transitionary period, we need to keep our analysis open to seeing the potentials that are in front of us, but without a harsh ideological lens that's going to steer the interpretation of the facts, especially when it comes to a question as important as this. Like, we want to universally emancipate humanity from the way that capitalism holds us down. So the transitionary period could go in any number of a variety of like parallel ways, or even parallel ways at once that end up converging later. Yeah, and this growth period of different movements in that direction has already lasted lifetimes and seems likely that it will continue to do so. Bookchin was working on social ecology for far longer than either of us have been alive. But if you trace it back, this trajectory stretches back long before even he was born. And I think it's important to mention that and to face the reality that the end of capitalism could be decades or even hundreds of years into the future from where we are now. The perfectly realized, ethical, social ecological, directly democratic society that we want to build likely isn't something that anybody pushing for it today will be around to see. And that doesn't mean that, you know, things aren't growing in the garden. It doesn't mean you can't pick a few berries here and there. There's real progress and achievements to be made prior to the full, complete end of capitalism. It's not like everything before that will be meaningless. Yeah, it makes me think that in the realm of gardening metaphors... <laughs> for revolution, to think of the revolution as the harvest or like this thing that's in the distance where things are going to pay off. It's true in a sense, but we can say there's going to be a lot of harvests along the way. We can say that we're stuck in the growing phase of the single garden metaphor, but the reality of the world is that it's made up of many, many gardens and we can constantly grow and experiment and try and learn from experience. Because I think if we frame revolutionary politics around the assumption that there's going to be the cataclysmic moment later in our lifetimes where there's a sudden change, we're going to miss out on the chance to like harvest a lot of gardens along the way and keep our plans achievable sizes that we can contribute to and see the difference. And like everyone knows that you can't just start from scratch and be like, okay, I'm going to build the world's tallest building and that's going to be my life's work. You have to like go through the process of like learning how buildings fundamentally function. You can start by building like shelters. You can start by building larger shelters and you can share information. Yeah. And even like the great cathedrals of Europe, these were often things that were constructed multi-generationally. And the person who dreamed them up and the people who spent their lives working on it were people who never got to see the finished product. And if that's what they were relying on for their motivation to build the cathedral, that they got to see the end product, they wouldn't have started building it. So on one hand, we have to acknowledge to ourselves that we're not going to see the end of capitalism. We're not going to see the last light go out. But at the same time, we can build spaces that represent the values and represent the ways of being that we hope to become the dominant ways of being someday. You know, the baseline interpersonal communism of day-to-day -day life taken to institutional forms. And we can build spaces and we can experience spaces within our life through the practice of experimenting and learning more about the sort of work of building political consciousness, building political institutions and organizations, and increasing the sort of realm of human freedom by making people's voices matter and, and creating politics where every voice is listened to. Like this middle thing of experimentation, like we can see a lot within that. I mean, things are going to have to get a lot better than they are now to get us to the point where we're at the moment before the actual full end of capitalism. Like we have to get to a point where the harvest is imminent 
Do you know what I mean? Like this transition period is something that's going to be a long thing, but at the end of it, you're almost at the end of cat, like almost everything is no longer capitalism at that point. You know, the food is about ready to be harvested. All global gardens are thriving at this point. Like there's been a trajectory of increasing fullness, flexibility and political freedom that's brought us to the point where the end of capitalism is happening. That's the trajectory of this middle piece. It's getting us to the almost moment. Yeah, it's funny. You more often hear people say things are going to have to get a lot worse before there's a revolution. But you just said the opposite, and it seems way more true to me, which is things are going to have to get a lot better before we can end capitalism. And then, yeah, I guess actually part three, imagining the end of capitalism itself, that moment. I mean, once you're there and it's I feel like it'll just kind of be like, oh, finally, that's done. Yeah, it's like, may, like maybe people won't even notice. If you mentioned it to someone, they'd just be like, oh, I thought that ended like a decade ago. We've been living under a society which doesn't use capitalist relationships in day-to-day -day life for generations and generations, but technically there's like a grain trading system between certain nation states <laughs> or something that goes on. And they're like, they're like, what are you even talking about? The end of capitalism? It's just like the signing of a pen between two bureaucrats who are indifferent, who are like, this trading arrangement based on currency and private property is outdated like we can just right. use the, the system we use for other types of trade and just like that moment is the instagram kodak last moment of cap it was like two indifferent bureaucrats signing something yeah not realizing the historical import of it but something that's pointed out decades later and like the full history of capitalism someone's like that actually was it that was the moment and it's funny they were both considered such conservatives at the time but they just saw it was common sense because it was so dumb that this old system still existed it was sort of yeah, like people were already thinking about the next trajectory at that point that you were at the end of the previous one and kind of like you just don't think about it that much so I don't know, that's probably what the actual end of capitalism will be like. No, I think that is a lot closer than some other theories I've heard. You know, Bookshin, for the last 20, maybe 30 years of his non-career, I say non-career because he was an autodidact and became kind of obsessed with history, for obvious reasons, he felt like if you couldn't figure out what went wrong historically in the revolutionary tradition, then how were we going to go forward? He was really concerned with navigating what I think he saw as equal and opposite tendencies in radical left history. He wanted to thread the needle between anarchism on the one side and Marxism on the other. Marxism's idea of a dictatorship of the proletariat. Marx assumed that once capitalist production relations were broken, the state would wither away. And he, in a way, was naive. He never articulated a full political program for a socialist society. This was a disastrous oversight because in practice, Marxism slowly became a project to take power from the state, but never transforming that power. They took the reins of the state and they became the state. They became a hierarchical institution. He wanted to get away from the idea that we can either just seize the apparatus of the existing state unproblematically, and that's whether you're a liberal or a Marxist, and the anarchists who, in many cases, rejected institutions like larger scale social institutions and focused on culture, focused on autonomy. Although classical anarchists had their own institutional vision, I think increasingly over time, there became an emphasis on the individual and a certain naivete about the existence of power as a social fact that exists regardless of whether or not we like it. 
it exists. It's out there in the world, but we have to find a way to institutionalize it that is democratic and non-hierarchical. It's a starting point for developing communalism. It's something he's trying to draw out the best of the Marxist and the anarchist traditions and the radical democratic tradition to really come up with something that's different that tries to thread the needle between this pendulum of street protests and often non-institutionalized forms of mutual aid or resistance or what have you. And then on the other hand, of the state. And we've seen this over and over again throughout the history of the left. The failures to either, you know, if you're whether underground, create a revolution, or if you're the folks that went in the long march to the institutions to take over the Democratic Party. So you just see this back and forth, back and forth. We see it again now from Occupy to Bernie. So how can we keep both of these elements in mind at the same time? Another useful image here is the acorn. In natural development, the developmental trajectory of an organism is embedded in its smallest form. Given appropriate conditions, soil, water, sunlight, an acorn has the potential to become an oak tree because of how that acorn is structured. <laughs> I always think of, you know, how high I would put something. You know, a bicycle is not going to become an oak tree. And we need to apply this thinking to our social movements. The Leninist movement, they wanted a top-down authoritarian movement to convert into something grassroots and worker-led. We need to really think through what is the seed that is going to have the potential to become the revolutionary counterpower to take on capitalism and the state. If we're planting bicycles, they're not going to grow into a forest. I think this is the insight of social ecology's emphasis on direct democracy. Subordinated by Marxism to the party, rejected as either bourgeois democracy or tyranny of the majority by anarchists, some anarchists. These forms of popular self-management and direct democracy provide the institutional architecture that could allow for positive liberty, where we can make social decisions as a community, as a whole, in a liberatory manner. Murray Bookchin said, social ecology is an attempt to define the institutional contours of a new society. What he means is that social ecology not only studies the natural world or how human beings relate to nature, but also how human beings relate to each other and can create new procedures, mechanisms of power, new plans, new programs, bringing mutually reinforcing relationships into the political sphere. And of course, his philosophy of communalism is a nod to the Paris Commune of 1871, when popular assemblies, neighborhood assemblies, ran a city of a million people for a short period of time in a revolutionary situation. So he thought that this was really an overlooked form of freedom throughout history. Direct democracy is what Bookchin calls formalized freedom or a form of freedom. He believed we have to create the forms of freedom. And direct democracy is a formal expression of our desire for freedom. So social ecology is really interested in this question of institutional forms and how power in society is non-hierarchically distributed through being institutionalized into directly democratic forms. Something that we see at all of those, you know, whys of history that Haya was talking about earlier and represents this already existing form through which non-hierarchical politics can be institutionalized. 
And if that's the kind of society we want to create, then that's the kind of seed we should be planting. That's what we should be doing in our movements. We should be building the forms of freedom that we want others to participate in. Bookshin saw it as part of the project of social ecology to decouple hierarchy from order. People think of order and hierarchy as one thing like against chaos and disorder. And he's saying we can separate these things apart, that we can have horizontally organized order. So forms of freedom are, in Bookchin's specific view, local assemblies. They're institutional collectives that are ordered that give space for types of meaningful freedom that are rarely experienced under the current society. The forms that we should take socially and politically in order to create the space for the most amount of human freedom. Not just to create the most human freedom in terms that we might conventionally think about it, like the freedom to choose right, between right, things and right. stuff but also new types of freedom, new frontiers of freedom that sort of pick on the legacy of the development of freedom throughout all of natural history and create institutions that give rise to new meaningful forms of freedom that actually apply people's agency politically. Yeah, the social ecological conception of freedom is pretty different than like the basic one you might hear in, say, America or something, which is very much based on negative liberty and I got mine and don't come on my property and property is very tied to freedom and it's let me fend for myself and that equals freedom, which is pretty different from a more expansive conception of freedom that realizes, hey, people who don't have enough food to eat are less free than people who do. People who are able to meaningfully participate and help shape their society are way more free than people who can't do that. Freedom comes not just from being left alone, but from the creation of positive social structures and institutions that enshrine and increase it. But I'm also proud to say we uphold the right to be left alone at the same time. It's, it's included. Yeah, it's not <laughs> disincluded. It's just not the only part, right? Being left alone is great, but it's also really great to not be left alone when you need help. If being left alone is mandatory or like the norm in a way that is antisocial, that actually goes against at least 12,000 maybe 40,000, some would say as much as over 2 million years of history in terms of our developmental trajectory. Yeah, you want to talk about human nature. To not be alone is a pretty consistent thing in human history and nature. Like, we just don't do well by ourselves. We know primates are pack animals. We observe that in ourselves every day. But also we know that from the fossil record, primates are group species. We are in that family. Social ecology also recognizes that the kinds of relationships that we need to evolve and develop if we're to achieve an ecological society really have to happen at a human scale. Direct democracy requires primary relationships, a municipalist strategy in which we base our politics where we live, in our neighborhoods, cities, and towns, a politics which allows for face-to-face -face ties and which provides forums in which everyone can be involved in making the decisions that affect their lives, town meetings, neighborhood assemblies. In social ecology, we've identified the municipality as a kind of political entity that in fact predates the state and in many ways stands outside of the state. The image that comes to my mind is the state as a kind of parasite with its tentacles wrapped around the rest of society. 
in virtually every part of the world, you can see how municipalities have stood apart from the state and acted as sites of horizontal, liberatory political action. He was really interested in rediscovering a kind of libertarian, small L libertarian, decentralist urge. He saw cities as being an ideal arena for decentralizing power. And he was critical of those cities becoming these kind of urban megalopolises that didn't allow for this kind of more rich, organic community life, face-to-face -face democracy. So he called for breaking them up into neighborhood assemblies and kind of the same confederal principle that he wanted to apply elsewhere. He also draws out the usurpation of these democratic powers from localities to greater and greater higher levels of centralization in very problematic ways. Cities grew into often city-states, and the city-states grew into nations. Some of what I just described regarding this sort of parasitic entity that is the state bearing down on the rest of society. What we mean is that there is a very important distinction between statecraft and politics, between bureaucratized, centralized control of political life and the authentic grassroots expression of ordinary people seizing management of their own everyday lives. I think people want to control their own destinies and that's partly why people hate politics is because it's something that they think is just only done to them by professional politicians that has no relevance to their lives. They don't feel empowered. They don't participate in democratic assemblies that determine how their social world in common is going to look. In social ecology, along with other political traditions, we call those kinds of institutions where everyone who lives in a given area, town, neighborhood comes together as free and equal individuals to manage their shared lives. We call that sphere of human activity politics. This idea that politics, real politics, human politics have to happen in a place, in a city or a neighborhood, in a local community with other people that you know and exist nearby. The existence of humankind has spanned hundreds of thousands of years. And the majority of that time, we've existed in face-to-face -face relationships, primarily. We have extremely complex communicative functions using our faces and bodies in person that stretches back even before the existence of Homo sapiens. We evolved alongside sociality. And face-to-face -face sociality and sociality in most contexts have been synonymous throughout our development. The face-to-face -face direct democratic assembly you can find all over history. There's early instances of democracy that we know about from the Middle East. There's egalitarian face-to-face -face horizontal decision-making in indigenous tribes from all over the world. There were town meetings during the American Revolution, during the Haitian Revolution, Russian Revolution. I mean, any time where people come together against hierarchical authorities and assert basic needs, they've used throughout history face-to-face -face democratic meetings. It shows up on pirate ships. We have this rich tradition, this historic revolutionary tradition, which we should be aware of and consciously draw on. There might be something to it worth trying to keep when we're describing what ought to be.
But I think a lot of people in the world right now suffer from anxiety, social anxieties. So the idea that in order for a democracy to be good, like I have to go talk to people face to face all the time, like there's this social demand being placed on me. That's the vibe of my kind of initial hesitation around the idea. But I also think it has a lot to do with perceiving it as like an extra thing that you would have to do in this society with the same level of support and mental health care, et cetera, that you have in this world. For the objections, let me just put your mind at ease totally and allow your mind to completely relax so you feel zero anxiety about the premise of direct democracy. Thank you. The first of which is, I don't think you should be compelled to participate in direct democracy, but you should be free to participate in institutions where your voice is going to have an impact in the world, which you currently don't have. And there should also be ways to ensure that people can participate if they have barriers to access of any kind, and whether that's anxiety or physical disability, you name it. We wouldn't want to exclude people based on some abstract preference for face-to-face democracy over other modes of collective decision-making. But something really important about this conception of democracy is that it's not just mere voting. You know, if you open up your smartphone and you're making decisions by yourself, you're not participating in the group process of reasoning and ethics and coming to conclusions together and being part of the political process of coming to serious decisions, which is a dialogue-based process. You can't share ideas with a ballot box. You have to meet in person and have conversations and have institutions that can turn those conversations into action. When it comes to something like anxiety, there's a lot of things that are important and fun and thrilling and empowering that are scary the first time. And there should be institutions to help people through that. But if I'd never been to a grocery store before, I could be anxious about it. So yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be mandatory. There should be ways to help people get into it. But I think there is something really important about being able to deliberate. Personally, I'm less sold on the face-to-face element. I think that was overstated. I think we have new technological tools that let people deliberate in different ways, that make it more accessible for people with disabilities, for people who are shy and don't like to get up on a chair in the middle of a public agora, which is most people. The public sphere is a very masculinist place full of like chest-thumping orators, full of reason and passion, and that's very few people. So I think that element we can and should reframe. That said, the deliberative act is very important. I think Bookchin really focused on this for many reasons. One, this is where we really need to hear the other side. We need to hear other people's ideas and that we're open to change. Just as society is open to change, our ideas, ourselves, our minds are open to change over the course of hearing different arguments. The need for diversity in ecological terms, I think, is very parallel to the need for diversity in social terms. Diversity of skills and diversity of perspectives on the world, the diversity of different kinds of intelligence and different ways of knowing and ways of learning are all important and valuable. Capitalism has robbed us of so many facets of what it means to be human. The ability to talk to people who we don't know or have a very different experience than us, who have a very different viewpoint than us and who we need to cooperate with, we've been robbed of that skill and that realm of life. You mentioned paeda, paedia. I have no idea how to pronounce Greek. That term refers to the process of education that permeated the Mediterranean world for people to participate in direct democracy. 
Bookshin really believed that every revolution is an educational revolution. To really come together to educate ourselves so that we were educated on the topics, the issues we were addressing, but also educated as revolutionaries. To be able to become the people who create a good and revolutionary society. In our current political imagination, in very authoritarian cultures, we think of direct democracy as chaos. We can't believe that ordinary people could simply come together and manage their everyday lives. In fact, that idea is like asking ordinary people to come together with no previous knowledge, with no training, and construct a sneaker, you know? You can't just randomly construct a sneaker. You have to have the tools and the skills and the materials to do so. Anyone who's been a part of political movements for a long time and has engaged in processes of critical self-reflection has to some extent experienced this sensation of paedia, you know, like that you become a more democratic person. People need time to educate themselves, educate each other, go to what the ancient Greeks call the agora, talk and discuss, debate ideas, so that when they go into the citizens' assembly, they actually have some reflection on important ideas and have creative and dynamic new and important ideas to share with each other. The same way that an ecosystem is more than the sum of its parts and all the different pieces form complementary parts of a whole that creates a type of stability, metaphorically, we can draw a comparison with that to the realm of political freedom and that all these different people having different specialties and knowledge, playing off of one another, doing mutual political education work. It's more than the sum of its parts in a very literal sense. It creates a developmental trajectory towards better politics, better outcomes, and engages more and more people in the decisions that are required to exist in the universe. Oh, and the other important thing is that people should work less. Like, you should get paid time off work to participate in democracy. Did I already say that? Because I should say it like a bunch of times. This is a foundational, political, practical idea of social ecology. We didn't make it up. This is something that goes back to the beginning. Social ecology's political platform is as soon as possible, reduce work hours to increase democratic time. I love the way that the focus is on creating an environment where people can become the type of democratic citizen that a good democratic society deserves. What you just described is such a perfect example of it. Giving people time off work to participate in democracy acknowledging that there's this basic fundamental part of our lives, our ability to interact with others in our community, to make collective decisions together on behalf of the things that affect all of us. That's missing. That's something that isn't supported or allowed in the world as it currently exists. And like that supported aspect of it is that this kind of collective decision-making is something we need to do together and something that we need to help each other through the process of learning how to do it, of becoming the kinds of people who are skilled at it. We're already the type of people who would be good at it if they tried. Human beings are collaborative, decision-making, reasoning, ethical. There's a real potentiality of igniting and engaging 
with respect horizontally, eye to eye, next to each other, across the human population for the purposes of collective decision making, coming to greater ethical horizons together, you know, working through the problems of society and history that we've inherited, the shared challenges of life can be tackled in groups through a culture that would develop over time in relation to the institutions and the institutions would develop in relation to the culture is an educational project where everyone's participation means a continued fortification of their political capacity. Aristotle believed that if you were just working in order to survive, you're kind of just an animal, which is kind of a, a not very nice thing to say, and I don't mean to sound hierarchical. I don't believe humans are necessarily better than animals at all. But Aristotle meant that humans have this ability to not just be self-conscious, but we have this ability to be political, to think about how we form society together, how we debate, how we discuss, how we make policy together. The other piece that comes to mind is the Marxist ideal of the rounded individual. I forget the exact language. What's it, you know, fishing in, in the afternoon, reading philosophy in the evening. An essential part of the socialist project must be recovering ourselves as individuals with many, many facets to our lives. Through new kinds of political struggle, we foment new kinds of political identities. And social ecology advocates for the reclamation of the concept of citizenship and argues that we should be creating a revolutionary identity around the concept of citizenship. The citizen, which we tend to think of in these kind of like liberal, reductive, exclusionary terms or ways for good reason, because citizenship is denied to so many today, but he meant it far more in terms of just being a denizen of a city and having a stake and a say in how the place where you lived was run. So when we talk about the municipality as a site of revolution, what we really mean is the people who are inhabiting that municipality and inhabiting those institutions are creating a community that is revolutionary. What we're building when we build at the municipal level, you know, it isn't a building. We're building a political community that is intimate and personalized and where we all arrive as equals and unique individuals. Becoming a citizen who's empowered to go into the Citizens' Assembly and speak for Bookchin, when we do that, we become what Aristotle called a political animal, a Zoom politicon, and we actualize our ability to become what he called free nature. As we govern ourselves rationally, according to a set of principles, in a way that's respectful to each other and to the rest of the natural world, through becoming ecologically oriented, directly democratic human beings, we fulfill our potential for creating a free nature. And so what social ecology is saying, through the development of human history, throughout the development of natural history, which includes human history, there's been an increasing amount of freedom and potentiality in the lives of consciousnesses. Consciousness in natural history is facing more and more complex decisions, i.e. a bigger realm of freedom over time. Human beings have more meaningful freedom than our ancestors did, if you go far enough back to, say, fish or whatever. The face-to-face -face direct democratic assembly is a theory of a way to relate to human beings' natural social history and connect it to politics 
endless understanding of the historical development of human consciousness and decision making and saying like this is the ideal that we ought to attempt to do. Welcome to Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. Just got kicked out of a Facebook group by leftists who can't take a joke. These sad sacks want to control everybody's speech. The left used to be about helping common people. That's when it was good. But now it's just about telling people like me not to make jokes. I totally agree that free speech is under attack every day by governments and corporations. Can you really have neutral free speech in a society where corporations control millions, or if not billions of dollars? They can spend on advertising, public relations campaigns, and slap lawsuits to quiet their dissenters. That's not free speech at all. So I totally agree with you on that. But I did see the interaction that got you kicked out of that group. And I don't think it's right for you to use that word even as a joke. I don't think that's a real issue of free speech. I think free speech is more accurately understood to be about free expression, the expression of ideas underlying it, not the rote use of any individual word. And you know, the people who are arguing for free speech in the way that you do, their entire argument is that by people talking about things, they're preventing others from speaking. And because it's wrong to prevent people from speaking, the people who are preventing people from speaking need to be prevented from speaking. The whole thing doesn't make any sense. And when I read a post like yours, I see the thoughts of someone who is expressing a lot of political naivety. And I wonder if you might do well to Google Murray Bookchin or even just do some like reading in the philosophy library or on Wikipedia, because you're kind of making a fool of yourself. Oh, I'm making a fool of myself? You're the one who's sitting here saying at the same time that you believe in free speech and also that I should never, ever be allowed to say a certain word. The one thing I do agree with you about is that big corporations are a huge threat to free speech right now because they've teamed up with the SJWs to stop me from saying these words and making these jokes. And you fell for it. And I suggest that you go on Wikipedia and read more because I've done my research. Okay, well, the bad words thing is kind of a red herring, but just technically speaking, almost no one would suggest that there are words that can never, ever be said in any context, in either use versus mention for any reason. It's sort of a straw man. I mean, what people are actually saying is that there are certain words and concepts which 99% of the time or more are fighting words that push people to agitation, that are fundamentally about degrading them, and to use them in 99.5% of context as most people and most circumstances is not an expression of what politically and ethically motivates us. It's a hierarchical provocation that's useless at best, damaging at worst. But then on the thing about like SJWs and corporations, the real threat to free speech isn't that there's going to be more movies with black main characters. The threat to free speech from corporations is their ownership of intellectual property, the monopolization of intellectual property property over time, major corporations taking up more and more of the broadcasting communication space and having things that are approaching information monopolies, because not having access to information is having your free speech abridged because you need access to information in order to form
formulate speech and expression. So if we value speech and expression, we have to value access to information. And we have to value being against the monopolization of access to information or the monopolization of distributing information. So there are like real threats for major corporations when it comes to like the real values of free speech that I think we should uphold. But this stuff about like you can't insult women anymore, I find that sort of a lacking political argument about the shape of the threats to free speech as someone who cares deeply about it. This proves it. All you leftists are the same, and now you are trying to cancel me. This world I live in is a nightmare. I feel like the walls are closing in. I'm a straight white man, and I just feel like I got a target on my back. I feel like everywhere I turn, another person has joined the pod people. Too scared to go against the narrative everyone is pushing, and I think that is the biggest threat to free speech. The crackdown on anything that makes anybody even the littlest bit upset. It just really upsets me, and I think it needs to be stopped. There's a lot to unpack there. I think there's a lot we could disagree on if we wanted, but I'm going to focus on something that I think we do agree on, which is sort of the basic idea that within a society, everyone's voice should matter. People shouldn't be politically excluded. There shouldn't be second-class citizens. There shouldn't be different legal standards for different people, different human rights. We should have a society where there's many different types of human rights and they should apply to everyone. There shouldn't be any sort of social stratification. Are you with me on that? Well, I could maybe quibble with a few words, but I basically agree. Go on. Great. Well, here's the way I see that, and maybe we can find more to agree with here. I'm an ecological direct Democrat. I identify as a social ecologist. I just find that social ecology makes sense. And what we advocate is for a very high level of freedom of expression, but not just that, going a step further and making it so that people's free expression within the political realm has an actual impact in the world, knowing that the things you say within politics are going to have an impact on the actual way the society is run. Like, that's the purpose of direct democracy, is to make sure that every voice is heard and every voice matters. The way that the structures of society are set up, you know, we have a democracy where you vote every so many years on representatives, but the depth of our democracy isn't very great. We don't get choices on very many things, and the politicians can rule over voters in a way that they have no accountability. So the political and economic system powerfully disenfranchises all of us in politics all the time. Are you sure you're a leftist? You're being way too nice to me. I've never experienced anything like this before. Leftists are like anyone. Sometimes they post mean, sometimes they post nice, sometimes they're in a good mood, sometimes they're in a bad mood. They just really dislike racism and sexism and stuff. If you filter that through, say, like a cringe compilation lens, which I don't want to project too much, but I assume is going on with you, a cringe compilation of anything is going to like naturally give you a distorted picture of it. Like if I did a cringe compilation of penguins, people might be like, wow, penguins, what an idiotic animal. Wow, man, you love penguins too? Do you have any sweet penguin vids? Here are some of my favorites. This penguin is hilarious. Yeah, dude, we just did this listicle, top 10 penguin gifs. You gotta check it out. Oh, wow, you say gif too? All these other leftists I met always said gif. Really gave me a bad impression. Honestly, man, sometimes your yikes triggers me, but I think I got the spoons to be your friend. What do you say? Do you think I'm cringe? 
I always say that we're all a little bit cringe, but I think it's pretty based that you'd have a conversation with me. I appreciate that without taking it as a rote normative standard for all activists in all contexts, because it sort of seemed like you were implying that it's bad that other leftists don't do this. And I actually want to stand up for the other leftists there, because not all of them should do it in all the circumstances. But yeah, so I guess thank you, but not as an insult against the people who don't. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. So social ecology imagines municipalist direct democracy, local assemblies as the core of what political engagement should be like. But there's also a recognition that global problems exist and that any good future society will need to be able to take care of those problems. And then, of course, beginning with this principle of direct democracy, the politics of social ecology incorporates the understanding that there are aspects of life that are going to require coordination between communities. So the flip side of the decentralized, directly democratic approach is confederation. The idea that each of these local functioning direct democracies then needs to confederate. If you're talking about a city, the neighborhood councils have to confederate citywide. The cities have to confederate regionally. The regions need to coordinate continentally. And the continents need to coordinate globally around certain issues. So confederalism was this idea of concentric circles of councils embedded with one another to make these broader decisions. He says it's a network of administrative councils. Delegates are elected from popular face-to-face democratic assemblies. The members of these confederal councils are recallable and responsible to the assemblies that choose them solely for the purpose of administering the policies formulated by the assemblies themselves. So the policy decisions come from the bottom up, not from the top down, but then they're administered and coordinated horizontally at greater scale. So on the one hand, he's trying to say that, you know, the forms of freedom are intensely small assembly forms of democracy, and yet they're embedded in a broader matrix of confederalism that serves as a check on local parochialism and that enables us to make decisions at scale. So it's a way to ensure direct democracy remains the underlying basis for decision making, but it still allows for coordination and elaboration of those aspects of society that require a larger scale. Hey everyone, we still have so much more to cover, but looking at our watches here, we're running out of time for this week. Yeah, when we split this episode off from the first one because we were trying to avoid having a four-hour episode, we thought, you know, this is great. We're going to be able to give the second half, the end of capitalism, imagining the better future, its real due. You know, we're going to get into all these topics better, uh, really use all that interview audio we have and make it the best it can be. And then in the process, it was like, whoops, once again, it's a four-hour episode and we have to split it in half. So we'll be back next week with all of our guests to land the plane, finally get to the bottom of this social ecology. With everything we've heard so far, where are we going next? We're not imagined out yet. And if you liked our show this week, it's probably good to mention that our show is funded by Patreon at patreon.com slash seriously wrong. The Institute for Social Ecology also has a Patreon. And I highly recommend if you're interested in the subject of social ecology, the Institute for Social Ecology has both yearly intensives and online courses, so in-person intensives. 
where you take a series of classes with different teachers for a couple days. I've went to two of them and had a great time. There's also online courses, including courses that you can do self-directed online. So if you're interested in this stuff, I highly, highly recommend checking that out at the Institute for Social Ecology website. Yeah. And just once again, a huge big thank you to the Institute and to all of the guests who did interviews with us for these episodes. Their knowledge and their ability to communicate these ideas have made these episodes possible. And it's increased my understanding of social ecology. I think it's increased Sean's understanding of social ecology. Can't thank them enough for being there to allow us to create this with them. Yeah, I have to say, I really do feel like through this process, I have glimpsed a fresh eye of freedom, a fresh glimpse of freedom with this concept of wholeness that we talk about in this episode. I've been affected by it. I felt it very profound. And so, yeah, thanks again to all the teachers of the Institute for Social Ecology for taking the time to talk to us, teach us from their experience, and help us pass that information on to our audience. So we will be back again in just one week with the final part of the Social Ecology Trilogy, Social Ecology and the End of Capitalism, Part 2. Yeah, it's kind of like if, you know, like Lord of the Rings as a trilogy, but each of them are discrete. But then there's also something like Kill Bill that's part one and part two of one movie. And what we're doing in this series, through the process of trial and error and editing, re-editing, thinking about things, adding more stuff, is we've created something that is a Lord of the Rings style trilogy that also part two and three are a Kill Bill one and two type split. So it's not without precedent. I kind of feel like Star Wars does that a little bit. The Empire Strikes Back has a cliffhanger ending. So it's not one movie with Return of the Jedi, but they tell a complete story together, those two movies, in a way that I think A New Hope does just on its own. That's a great point. That is a great point. I think we have made sort of the Star Wars original Star Wars trilogies of podcasts here. Yeah, except this isn't the down note. The down note is the first one. Okay, bye everyone. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your time and attention. We love you. Last time on the Social Ecology Rangers. I just wish I could be a normal teen. Social Ecology Rangers. Capitalism threatens humanity's place on Earth. Save humanity, but I can't even pass bumper sticker class. I don't know if I can do this. It's Morphin' Time! We now return to our teen heroes as they fight the ideological foot soldiers of capitalism. Economism is using spreadsheets and calculators to justify starvation and homelessness. It's convincing people that what we need is impossible. Clericism is using a false interpretation of expertise and specialization to unjustly exclude and dehumanize people, denying everyone dignity and a say in their own lives. Oh, I don't know if I can hold out much longer. Ah, they're overpowering us. We're not gonna make it. Quick, everybody in here. We can block the entrance. That should hold it. Oh, what are we gonna do? I've got an idea. Team. 
Requesting consent to establish a temporary horizontal facilitation structure with myself as the recallable director and strategist. I consent. I consent. I consent. I consent. Quick, swear the oath. I solemnly swear to not overstep the bounds of my role, which is limited to the completion of this one task, and I claim no authority to enforce my facilitation except by our shared goodwill. We pledge to hold you responsible and refuse to follow unethical directives. All right, team. First, we're going to build educational resources, including radical libraries and reading groups, and build friendships with our neighbors and our communities, and leverage those as the first steps into establishing face-to-face, -face directly democratic counterpower institutions. Face-to-face? -face, but what about accessibility concerns? Can't we vote online as well? No, and that's a great point. It's important that everyone's voice is welcome. Of course, we can vote online as well, but there's more to democracy than just voting. The crucial thing that we learn to do online is deliberate together to build a democratic experience and education. We can build the new and the shell of the old, create counterpower institutions that provide for people and can challenge the powers that be, starting at the local level. But the climate crisis is global. How can a local direct democracy tackle global concerns? So here's the idea. The local assemblies confederate into larger regional and then eventually global assemblies to coordinate on global concerns and allowing for a sort of flowing back and forth relationship between big picture coordination and smaller local implementations. That means that everyone gets a democratic right to participate in a global democratic society for the first time in human history. But how will people have enough time to participate in these directly democratic meetings? They have to go to work. Well, that's why in a social ecological society we abolish work. Society can be organized by free association on a cornucopia of circulating abundance and ecological post-scarcity technology. Eventually anyways, but in the transitionary period, what we're dealing with more imminently, we can do things like reduce the work week, provide paid time for democratic engagement, and things like that. And there is some significant debate on whether we can fully abolish work, like entirely, or whether that's the best way to describe it. Maybe unpleasant tasks can be made into a type of play, for example, through cultural intervention. But in any case, we all agree that the era of tedious, painful, excessive, compulsory toil as a way of life needs to be permanently but ended. what if people reject these ideas as utopian? We just explained that what we're proposing is a scientific utopianism, where we think of the utopian goals that we want to achieve in principle, a perfected and democratic, joyful society, and then experiment with implementations of those ideas at the local level, connecting with the people who actually live there, mixing in local history, pulling on other influences, and then use that experimental process to further develop our idea of utopia, which we share, and so on. You know, utopian ideas affect the way we organize and the way that we organize affects our utopian ideas. So yes, we're unabashedly utopian, and so is anyone who hopes or dreams of a better world. And honestly, facing climate crisis caused by climate change, we have no other choice but to aggressively become utopian scientists. We're gonna plant a truth seed right in their heart until their eyes bloom. Whoa. Are you with me? Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, social ecology, yeah, utopian right. yeah. scientific. Hierarchism and economism are going down. Yeah, let's stick it to them. Gordon, look! They're doing it! The tide of the battle is turning! The foot soldiers of capitalism have no imagination and they can't keep up with artists in the world of dreams! That's right, Omega-6. Thanks to those special teens, the end of capitalism is becoming easier to imagine than the end of the world. I'm doing it! I'm imagining the end of capitalism right now! It's so beautiful! It's not just beautiful, it's important. Murray Bookchin, the founder of Social Ecology, said that mere economic deprivation is not enough. It's the space between what is and what should be that is the nesting ground for revolution. By envisioning a better world, we keep hope alive in our hearts. The hopeless don't revolt, because revolution is an act of hope. 
That's a Kropotkin quote, but it's also a theme of Ryan Johnson's offbeat take on Star Wars, Episode 8, personal favorite of Gordon, casino scene, amazing stuff. And that's why utopian thought and practice is so important. Godfrey, we got capitalism right where we want him, and we got a once-in-a-lifetime shot. You're the only one close enough who can get it. The service vent, Godfrey, is about 144 characters wide. We need someone to lob a good zinger in there that sums up all this political well, stuff. You guys know I'm only going to get one run at this. I don't know if I can boil all of my ideas down to just 144 characters. You're the only one local enough. You're the only one close enough to do it. This is not my strong suit. You're I'm, neighboring the vent. I'm failing bumper sticker class. We believe in you. You can do it. Here goes nothing. Will the social ecology rangers tweet size dunk be so devastating that it takes down capitalism once and for all? Will Godfrey, who just wants to be a normal teen, be able to overcome his fear of bumper sticker length communication in order to take the whole thing down and usher in a new utopian, ecological, directly democratic society, a commune of communes where people are paid according to need and where everyone has a democratic say in their lives in ways beyond even the wildest reaches of our imagination? Stay tuned to Find out on Social Ecology Rangers.